If you'd like to follow the reading in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1062. And it's Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. <coughs> the beginning of verse 36. <coughs> Jesus appears to his disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, to believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Basically, it's a question of confidence and authority. Now, one of the things we need to be clear about is the, the resurrection, and I'm sure most of you are. If you're not... I may I refer you to Google Professor Sir Norman Anderson, who was director of the Advanced Institute of Legal Studies at the University of London, and you can get his little booklet for nothing, which is uh, the evidence for the resurrection. I commend it to you. He's a lawyer, pretty kind of, it's clear, accessible, brief. I commend that. This is his conclusion. Finally, what of the one who rose? It may indeed be objected by some critic that a resurrection from the dead is so incredible that no amount of evidence would suffice. Such an attitude seems prejudiced and unscientific. But let that pass. Let us assume that the resurrection of an ordinary man is indeed incredible. But such a line of reasoning cannot apply to the one whom we are considering. He was unique in all he did in all he said, in all he was. Whichever way one looks at him, he is in a class by himself. Even apart from the resurrection, there are excellent and convincing reasons for believing that he was God manifest in the flesh. Is it then so incredible that such a one should rise from the dead? It would have been far more incredible if he had not 
It is indeed the profoundest of mysteries that he should ever have died for us men and for our salvation. But having died, it's no mystery that he should have risen. So, to have confidence, we need to have, um, to the best of our, if you like, intellectual abilities, that we are sure that Christ rose from the dead. On the balance of the probability of the evidence, Sir Norman and many of us think he did. Next, we need to be, have a clear understanding of the faith. In this particular passage that we've looked at this morning, there is the juxtaposition of the Christ will suffer. Now, it's likely that Isaiah, when he was writing, did connect the Christ with suffering. The Christ is, that's the Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah, who is an anointed one, who is understood as, in, in their terms as an idealised King David. They had a long expectation of that for a thousand years. He pops up in the Psalms, the Royal Psalms in particular, and um, it's clear what he's, he's, uh, he's a divine figure, and uh, although distinct from God the Father who will indeed bring salvation to his people. But there are about 200 odd titles of this expected one. Another one is the suffering servant, which, as you know, is throughout the latter part of the book of Isaiah, particularly in the 50s. And there you have somebody who is also seen as a divine figure, yet distinct from God, and who rescues his people but what he adds to the to the to the big picture is that he will do it through vicarious suffering that he will actually die for the sins of the people and that because he did not deserve to do so he would be raised to life again now putting those two figures together isaiah might have connected it isaiah 55 is and three and four is quite possible that uh, he does. But certainly, hardly any other Jews would have done, and certainly none of Jesus' contemporaries. And so it was not even on the kind of, kind of a thought idea of the disciples that those two things would be connected, that this kind of idealised Davidic king would actually be, he would achieve it. His means would not be by warfare. His means would be by his humbling and by his suffering for the sins of the people. So when you kind of look at, through at the Old Testament, through um, knowledge of the risen Christ, a whole lot of things start to kind of click together. And that is what's happening here when it talks about the tem- him opening their eyes. You know, the whole thing starts to click. And the third thing we need to be clear about, because you can talk about loads of things about Jesus, he does a lot of nice things, and um, that's great, and I wouldn't want to diminish them, but you can tell by the way I'm talking that it's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the problem of human sinfulness and how God is able to forgive us and how we can access that forgiveness. And so Jesus says, after connecting that the Christ will suffer and then rise on the third day, he says, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. 
the suffering servant had introduced the notion that his death would be of benefit to all nations of the world. That was another kind of uh, injection of a fresh idea. So forgiveness and... Um, which is preceded by repentance. Now, in some ways, actually, being an advocate of the Lord Jesus Christ is a tall order because um, one only gets to Jesus by admitting that so far we have uh, lived our lives as functional atheists. He may have, we may have an awareness, but he's tucked away in the sort of recesses of our mind. But, you see, humble pie needs to be the first course if we're to get to the heart of the matter. And none of us likes admitting that we're wrong. When they built the Church of the Nativity in uh, Bethlehem, they made sure that the door was only about this high. It makes, some, makes for some very unflattering photographs as kind of, you know, ladies try to enter. Um, but the point was to make sure that men are humbled, that no man, no, not even a king, can go to the place where Christ was born unless he stoops in recognition of Christ's authority. Repentance is, there's a Greek word based on a Greek word called metanoia, from which we get metamorphosis. And we use that when we talk about caterpillars changing so that they become butterflies. Repentance really means a change of mind, a turnaround. So just as Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures, so now recognising who he is and what he's come to do, they change their minds about him. Once anybody realises that Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and that he can solve their biggest problem, which is their sinfulness, well then people start being open. Because sin is rebellion against God, it was the way we're born, it's our default position, it's the basis, it's the barrier that remains in place until two things happen. One is that Jesus removes the barrier, which he does by paying the penalty for sin. And the other one is if we avail ourselves of the pardon that he now offers, which we do through repentance by turning to him, and in faith, in other words, based on the evidence, we trust that he is able to deliver on that promise. We can understand how he is in a position to be able to forgive us. Now, it's very important at that point not to be kind of glib or superficial. The Apostle Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death and presumably, along the way, regret. Worldly sorrow is when we recognise we've got ourselves into a right mess. Our solution is often to blame other people or to blame ourselves because we're sorry for the inconvenience that it's caused us. But it results in little change. We're still heading to death with no hope and with the prospect of eternity to regret our life's decisions or indecisions. Godly sorrow, though, recognises that it is primarily God we have wronged, and it is him from whom we have to seek forgiveness of our sins, since fundamentally we've wronged him 
and we've messed up us and others who are his creation. So that's three things before I close with the fourth. We have a firm foundation in terms of the evidence of the resurrection, which when we respond to Christ, we discover in our experience that Christ is risen. So you have evidence and experience combining together to give us even greater certainty. Then we have a clear understanding of the Christian faith. We see how it all kind of connects together. And then there is focusing on the core transaction. We repent and in return we receive forgiveness. And lastly there's this mandate. It's not a word we often use, but a mandate is an official order or commissioning to do something. Whenever you... uh, Well, when we vote for a political party, their manifesto is said to be their mandate for then introducing, through the legislative process, their manifesto. doesn't seem to stop them adding in things which they never had in their manifesto, but that's another point. Uh, But if you look at a map of the Middle East, as we often frequently do on the news, you'll have been struck by the fact that all the boundaries are rather straight lines. And so we know they can't be, um, you know, ones which rivers aren't straight, you know, mountain ranges aren't straight. And we realise they were drawn up by somebody in an office somewhere who'd probably never been there, which is exactly how they did get drawn up. In the League of Nations, after the First World War, Western nations were given a mandate to rule those territories on behalf of the League of Nations, those territories which had belonged to the Ottoman Empire. So France was mandated to rule Syria and the Lebanon. Britain was, uh, received the mandate to govern Iraq, Transjordan and Palestine. Here, Jesus mandates them as his spokesmen and women. There's the eleven who, uh, you know, that's the 12 minus Judas. There's the two who were on the Emmaus Road, and there are those who are gathered, which included a number of named and unnamed women. And Jesus says to them, you are witnesses of these things. It's quite emphatic, it's an imperative. And they're witnesses because they have followed him all his kind of public ministry. They've heard what he's taught. They've been able to see what his character is like. They've seen what he claims to be. And uh, supremely here, they are evidence. They are witnesses of his resurrection. They touched him. They talked to him. They ate with him. He appeared and he disappeared. And they're able to testify uh, with that evidence. They are to be advocates of him and his teaching, which is all supported by his resurrection. Now, in a primary sense, their role was unique. They actually saw the risen Christ. But in a secondary sense, all Christians are mandated to use that evidence, backed up by their own personal experience of kind of taking God at his word, receiving forgiveness, being granted eternal life, living the kind of the way God intended, which is a much more hassle-free way than trying to do one's own thing. And uh, they, in a secondary sense, we, in a secondary sense, are to to use this evidence to witness to Christ throughout the world today. 
And those early witnesses were incredibly effective. James, the son of Zebedee, for example, bravely stayed in Jerusalem when things were getting quite hot. And he was the first apostle to be martyred. Acts 12.2 says he's slain with the sword by Herod Antipas the first in 44 AD. But if you see a map of the Roman Empire, or you see a map of really everywhere from Spain to kind of India or China, you will see that in the first century AD, the Romans traded with that great breadth. So what did the early Christian apostles do? They followed those trade routes. They first went to synagogues. Did you know there was a synagogue in India in the 9th century BC, that those Jews had fled um, when the northern kingdom split from the south and they'd settled in southwestern India. Of course, there was the exile, so there was a whole, more, more Jews were left in Babylon than ever returned to, to, the, to the Holy Land when Cyrus took over um, being kind of um, the Persian kind of ruler of the area. And so, you know, they went to Bag, what is Baghdad? They went to Babylon then. And uh, we find that that's what they in fact did. Andrew, for example, went to the land of the man-eaters, which is now the Soviet Union. And <laughs> Christians there claim that he was the first to bring their gospel to them, although he subsequently preached uh, in uh, Greece and was crucified in what is today the Peloponnese. Thomas was the most, perhaps the most active. He actually made it to India. And the Ma Thomas Church there claim him as their founder. They claim he arrived in, I think, about 54 AD, and he was killed in 74 AD. Philip went to North Africa, to Carthage, and then he went to Asia Minor, where, through him, the wife of the Roman proconsul was converted. Her husband was not pleased, and he had Philip arrested and killed. Matthew, the tax collector, he went to Persia and also later to Ethiopia, so the earliest traditions say. Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel, he went kind of north to the area around Armenia, he also went around the south, south of the Arabian Peninsula. James, the son of Alpheus, is uh, perhaps one of the least well-known, but he ministered in Syria, and the Roman historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, so the stories go, ministered in Persia and was killed by refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was the apostle chosen to replace Judas and he went to Syria with Andrew and died through burning. The apostle John is the only one we're pretty sure did not die a martyr's death. But they were incredibly effective. Forgive me if I said this earlier, but I can't remember what I said. Um, but um, the historian... Um, um, who's uh, called um, Rodney Stark, in the triumph of Christianity, estimated that by 350 AD, half the Roman Empire, that's 31 million people, were professing Christians. And that in Rome itself, 
66% of the population were Christians by 30 AD. And they did it just simply by gossiping the gospel, being clear, being incredibly bold and brave. But as we'll see when we see how Paul goes about it, incredibly polite as well, but they were incredibly brave. They were incredibly effective. And we just need to be like them. So we can have confidence in the resurrection as our foundation. That um, real, looking through the Bible, through the, uh, through the eyes of the resurrection, we can see how it, all the message hangs together. We should focus, at least, maybe not at the beginning, but in our conversation, with the core relationship between an individual and God, which is accessed through repentance and faith, and which benefits from forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it's something that we have been mandated to do. Christ tells us to do it. We may be, it may apply to us in a secondary sense, but if we take the evidence, we are to share it with others for their eternal benefit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be faithful witnesses of you, that we might convey the truth of the Christian faith to the benefit of all those who need it. Amen. Coffee should now be available if um, you'd like to make your way through to the hall.